Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Podcast, and I'm honoured to have Mr. Greg Knuckles back on the show, Uh, and many of you will be familiar with Greg's work. He is simply uh, amazing, and this episode uh, will highlight just how freaking intelligent uh, Greg is, and his photographic memory uh, of the research is something truly admirable, and in this episode, we discuss the updates to Greg's strength and physique meta-analysis, uh, a new concept in measuring uh, fatigue, the effort index. We talk about load variation uh, and fiber type uh, specific training, as well as why people are more than ever finding science to be very appealing and how Greg plans on continuing his communication of the science. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and without further ado, I present Greg Knuckles. All right. Welcome back, guys, to the JPS podcast, and very honored to have Mr. Greg Knuckles back on the show. He's uh, showing us his lat spread there. He lifts, he also does science, and he's uh, a leading uh, expert, in my opinion, in the fitness industry on all things uh, strength training. So today we're going to be talking about the current movements in science and some of the latest research Greg has been reading and disseminating uh, through both Mass and his website Stronger by Science. And if you guys aren't subscribed to Mass, I'll put a link in the description box below so that you don't miss out on staying up to date with uh, all the latest findings uh, related to training, nutrition, uh, physique and strength. And I'll link Greg's website also, uh, which I highly recommend you guys check out. So, welcome, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me. Is uh, is this just audio or audio and video? This is video, bro. So I can see your lat spread, and the audience ah, will shit. have seen your lat spread. <laughs> ah, man, now now I'm self conscious. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's get right into it. I reckon. Yeah, man. So first, I wanted to uh, talk to you about the updates to your strength and physique meta analysis on Stronger by Science website. So for the listeners uh, who may not have read the article uh, or may not even know which papers were added because you recently uh, added 10 papers uh, to this meta-analysis, uh, what are some of the important updates, uh, if any, and has there been a shift uh, in the weight of the evidence in a specific uh, area of research? Probably the coolest of the ones that I added, uh, there was a meta-analysis looking at um, factors affecting strength gains in um youth and adolescent women, um, finding that both young girls and teenage girls are still capable of gaining strength in response to resistance training. I feel like that's probably not something that's going to be very surprising to your audience, but like, um, a lot of, a lot of scientists still kind of don't think that kids gain strength in response to training. Like that's, that's something that you'll still see in position stands from time to time. Um, so yeah, that one was probably less cool from like a practical <laughs> standpoint because I feel like most listeners to this podcast will will already be well aware of that. But uh, just kind of neat academically speaking. Um, and then there was another one looking at uh, strength gains with eccentric overload training, mm-hmm. um, specifically um, super maximal eccentrics. Um, and that meta analysis found that super maximal eccentrics don't seem to on average significantly increase strength gains beyond just kind of typical training. Um, but a caveat to that is that there were like most of, most of the studies used either used, um, knee extensions or leg press. The one study included in that meta analysis that included squats, um, did find that there was a benefit to super maximal eccentrics. Um, so I think that that's kind of an area of research where I would want to wait to see more uh, like highly relevant evidence mm-hmm. before coming to a strong conclusion. Um, man, I honestly don't remember. Like when when I'm updating that list, uh, I just kind of it's <laughs> it's not the most exciting work in the world. So I just kind of put on some tunes and tune out and and do my thing. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure those were the two most interesting papers that I added this month, but there, there may have been something else. I, I reserved the right to be wrong. 
<laughs> no, awesome. Uh, I'll link that uh, in the description box so uh, listeners can have a read over that. Uh, but moving on to something a little more interesting uh, that uh, you, rev- you reviewed recently in mass was uh, the effort index, which mm-hmm. is a new metric for training, uh, aims to predict both acute neuromuscular fatigue uh, and post-workout elevations in uh, blood lactate. Um, and it was shown to be pretty accurate in predicting uh, two different proxies for fatigue, which is quite interesting. Uh, so I guess, you know, for listeners who aren't subscribed to Mass and have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, can you give a rundown of what the effort index is uh, and its application uh, in training and potential limitations? Yeah, so um, what effort index is, is it's a calculation based on two things. Um, one is, uh, like, highest velocity um highest velocity, like mean concentric velocity during a set of an exercise. Uh, So mean concentric velocity is negatively related to percent one rep max. So higher mean concentric velocities mean lower percentages of your max, vice versa. Um, So it's uh, initial velocity times average velocity drop per set. So let's say you start a set uh, first rep, you move it at one meter per second at the end of the set, last rep you move at 0.7 meters per second, that's a 30% velocity drop. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that case, uh, initial velocity one meter per second times 30% velocity drop, the effort index for a session of three sets uh, with those parameters would be 30, just one times 30% velocity drop. Um, And so what, what that paper did is it took people, um, had them do squat, like one group of people did squat, one group of people did bench press. Uh, they did 16 different workouts with each lift um, using different permutations of initial velocity and percentage velocity drop per set, um, which would give them different effort indexes. And they basically wanted to see how well uh, eff- that effort index calculation could predict two things. Uh, one of which was a measure of acute neuromuscular fatigue, which was um, basically before they did their first set of an exercise, they would just find a load that they could move at one meter per second. They'd find that load, and then immediately after their last set, they'd reload that load and see how fast they could move it again. So if you can move it, well, one meter per second before you start training, and then 0.8 meters per second at the end, that would be a velocity drop of 20%. Um, that's, that, was their, um, that was their indicator of acute neuromuscular fatigue. And then the other thing they looked at was just post-exercise elevations in blood lactate um, as their proxy for metabolic fatigue. And they found that for both squat and bench press, uh, effort index could predict acute neuromuscular fatigue and post-exercise elevations in blood lactate astoundingly well. So we're talking correlation coefficients of like anywhere between 0.92 and 0.96 for all measures for both exercises, which is ridiculous. Um, Like those are almost perfect correlations and you rarely see correlations that strong in like exercise science, sports science, unless it's like, something where there's like a very, very logical, just one-to-one connection. So for example, like work rate and VO2 has a very, very strong linear relationship like that. Um, but for, for a measure of fatigue that incorporates both initial velocity and velocity drop, so that's a proxy of both volume and intensity uh, to predict both neuromuscular fatigue and metabolic fatigue, for two different exercises with that level of accuracy is uh, very, very uncommon and very, very cool. Um, there are, so with that being said, it's it's something that's probably not quite ready to kind of deploy in the real world um, because like being a scientific study, everything was really well controlled. Um, they were using the same load for every set Uh, rest periods between sets were standardized. They were only doing three sets. So if you start messing with those variables, like if you do five sets instead of three sets, or if you use different loads for each set, 
Um, or if you're resting, I think they rested four minutes between sets in that paper, but like if you rested an amount different than four minutes or just had variable rest between sets, uh, I'm sure I'm sure the correlations wouldn't be nearly as strong. Um, so it's, it's an area where follow-up work is needed to kind of see if they can generalize that formula to mm. tack on a few extra variables without hopefully losing uh, much or any predictive accuracy. Um, but I think it's definitely a really, really cool first step um, that I'm personally quite excited about. Yeah, and uh, I guess for coaches or athletes out there, do you see this potentially being something that does come to surface uh, in the real world in practice, or is it more so something that's going to be used uh, purely in scientific research? Uh, I mean, I definitely see it being useful in research. Um, the The current version of it, I don't think would have all that much utility in kind of in the real world yet. Uh, but like I said, if if they did some follow, so I I want to make clear I'm not faulting the researchers for standardizing as many things as they did. So, um, like they were having the subjects do 16 workouts just to test the two variables, so initial velocity and percentage velocity drop. If they added say three different set levels, so if instead of doing just three sets if they did like two sets, three sets, and five sets or something like that, um, just adding one additional variable, that would multiply the number of workouts they needed to do with each subject from 16 to 48, uh, which would make the research project go from like very feasible to very not feasible very mm -hmm. quickly. Um, so I, I totally get why they didn't uh, attempt to manipulate more variables in this, in this single study. Um, but because the results were so strong and compelling, uh, I see this as like a very, very good mm. candidate for follow-up research to see if they can add a few more variables to generalize it further. If they can, so if they can add an additional variable for the number of sets being done or add an additional variable for the amount of rest time between sets or something like that, um, then I could see it being very, very useful in the real world. Um, I just don't think it's quite there yet. Just because all of those variables, thus far, we only know that it works really well if all of those variables are standardized. But if they're not standardized, who knows? Awesome, awesome. <clears throat> and there was uh, moving forward uh, into another paper that you reviewed uh, in mass. It was by Antretta et al. I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, and this was a study comparing uh, the Hatfield system uh, with daily undulating uh, periodization. So basically oh, varying yeah. uh, loading zones mm -hmm. within a session versus within a week for training outcomes. Um, and it was, uh, it was weekly undulating, uh, weekly undulating, weekly undulating, mm -hmm. sorry, because daily undulating is a hat fill system. Um, and basically with the popularity of DUP and weekly undulating periodization. So, you know, coaches are really, uh, you know, moving towards periodizing their training. So are athletes, you know, whether it's physique, or strength, you know, and for good reason. Um, you know, I've personally been using the Hatfield system, you know, with combining, you know, sort of weekly, uh, you know, and monthly uh, periodization setup uh, with some success. Uh, I thought, you know, whilst nothing exciting really about this paper, you know, non-periodized versus periodized, you know, as long as uh, volume loads and things are matched, uh, you know, we're going to get similar outcomes. But I thought it'd be useful to discuss this kind of uh, study and training design. Uh, and how it you know has implications for coaches, um, you know, when setting up a program, and whether or not your hunch uh, would be that you know having a Hatfield type setup uh, would lead to similar outcomes over longer durations. Yeah. So um, the the paper you're talking about, I thought it was a really cool paper, and I think it was a really important paper. Um, I didn't see many people talking about it. Mm. Probably probably just because it wasn't published in a very high impact journal. Um, and so probably not that many people read it in the first place. And if they did, they probably were like, oh, this isn't a good paper because it's not published in a high impact journal, uh, which that's another discussion for another day. But impact factor is just a complete <laughs> load of shit. Um, 
but whatever. That that's another rant for another day. Uh, but yeah, so I didn't see a ton of people talk about this paper, but it was pretty important because um, if you look at the research comparing periodized and non-periodized training, um, the the bulk of it tends to find that periodized training produces larger strength gains than non-periodized. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be really much, much if any, hypertrophy differences. Um, the strength findings summarized in a recent meta-analysis by Williams et al., the hypertrophy findings summarized in a systematic review and a meta-analysis by Gurdjieff et al. pretty recently. Um, so yeah, they, they tend to find that not really any hypertrophy differences, but uh, periodized training does seem to be better for strength gains. Um, the the issue with that conclusion is that, um, in my opinion, the the bulk of the research to this point hasn't standardized all of the variables they mm. should have standardized. So a typical periodized versus non-periodized paper, the way it'll be set up uh, is the non-periodized group trains with the same load, same rep, same sets. Well, not same load, but same relative load. So, um, you know. What they typically use is just three sets at a 10 rep max load or four sets at a 10 rep max load or something like that um, versus the periodized group, whether it's undulating or linear, typically they're going to have loads ranging from eh, 60, 70 percent of one rep max up to 85, 90 percent of one rep max. Um, and average volume and average intensity wind up being the same between the two groups but peak intensity ends up mm. being higher in the periodized group. Um, so people look at the paper and they're like, oh, average volume, average intensity were the same, so this is a fair comparison. I would argue not really, mm. um, because like, so for example, let's say, let's say you have, uh, and th this, is, this is just like purely theoretical, um, but let's say you were doing a study where one group trained at 50% of one rep max all the time, and the other group trained at, say, 30% one rep max two-thirds of the time, and 90% one-third of the time. Those those two setups would be roughly uh, normalized for average intensity, um, but obviously one group is training heavy a third of the time, mm. and the other group is never training heavy. They're only training with 50% of their max. Um, so I like that illustrates like why just comparing average intensity probably isn't enough. Um, and so the paper you're describing was the first the first study I've seen um, comparing periodized to non-periodized training where uh, volume, average intensity, and peak intensity were equated between groups. I want to say the highest that either group went was like four rep max or something like that, so around 90% or so. Um, but yeah, so since all three of those variables were equated, it was, as far as I'm aware, the first study that did that. Um, and in contrast to most of the literature to this point, it found that strength gains were similar between periodized and non-periodized training. Um, which, so, and it, it was a pretty short paper. It was either six, it was either six or eight weeks, yeah. if, if memory <clears throat> serves. Um, so then the question obviously is, like, do I think that that would that 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 would work long term. Um, so I think in favor of periodization, there's there are probably practical benefits to it. Um, so, you know, just being able to have like a prolonged hypertrophy phase where you're not going heavy, which might cause fatigue that could detract from total training volume or for like peaking for a meet, um, you're able to drop volume enough that you wind up fresh for the platform, et cetera. But more in the context of like long-term development, like just kind of quote unquote normal training, I think that non-periodized training, as long as you're still going heavy, like frequently enough, I think it would be fine. Mm. Um, like a training method that, that a lot of people used back in the day that has kind of fallen out of favor is like pyramid style training. Um, where like, you know, you work up to... I've actually been using that recently with some of my powerlifters, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I, 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 think it's, I think it's one of those things where just like kind of trends come and go, but yeah. uh, a lot of people just use pyramid style training, which for the most part is non-periodized training. 
Uh, like that was super popular in the 70s and 80s. People did it for decades, got super strong. Um, ultimately, I I doubt it makes, ultimately I doubt periodization makes as much of a difference for long-term development of powerlifters as a lot of people would tend to expect. Uh, I think periodizing training can, can have benefits just kind of on the practical side of things. Um, but ultimately I think it, it mostly comes down to lifter preferences. Mm -hmm. Um, so like just having trained and interacted with, with a lot of power lifters over the last, God, how long now? 12, well, 13 right. years or so I am. Uh, but yeah, so I think, I think most power lifters tend to be novelty seeking creatures. Mm. Um, they tend to not like to do the same stuff week in and week out all the time. And I think, I think honestly, that's one of the biggest benefits of periodization, um, especially like DUP or weekly undulating because something is changing session to session, yep. week to week. Um, especially if exercise selection isn't changing yeah. a hell of a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think like whether or not there's a physiological benefit, I think that's like a psychological benefit mm -hmm. for a lot of lifters. Um, they just have an easier time applying themselves to training that they enjoy. Um, but then there are also lifters who don't like changing much. Um, you know, they like to be able to see like, am I stronger than I was last week? Or like, can I at least do the same stuff I did last week? And if you're not doing the same stuff you did last week, how do you really know? Um, so yeah, I think that for someone who's kind of more psychologically predisposed to not like crave novelty as much, I think uh, I think an intelligent non-periodized training approach can can deliver solid results in the long term. Um, but I think most powerlifters will just kind of naturally gravitate towards a periodized approach anyways, just because I think it, it fits with their psychology better for the most part. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, something that seems to always get discussed when talking about hypertrophy, uh, is fiber type training and, mm -hmm. you know, the specifics, uh, of, you know, training according to, you know, muscle group fiber types or individual fiber typing, um, with, you know, different uh, loading zones and in June you reviewed a paper uh, in mass uh, so do you quickly want to run through the theory behind you know why uh, training with different loading zones you know is theoretically going to have a different impact on growth um, and then we can get into why the evidence is vague uh, and your suspicion uh, around the topic and when it's appropriate to potentially uh, optimize loading zones based on fiber types. Yeah, so so the idea is um, trying to think where to start here. Yeah. Uh, so basically, there you you can get uh, really into the weeds as far as fiber typing goes, but to simplify it considerably, um, there are two broad broad fiber types. There are type one fibers, also called slow twitch fibers, um, that tend to be. Uh, a little bit less powerful, but a little bit less fatigable as well. And type two fibers that are um, a little bit larger, a little bit more powerful, well, considerably more powerful, but also uh, more fatigable, less fatigue resistant. Um, and the idea is that uh, since type one fibers are um, less fatigable, that they'll need that they'll basically need to be exposed to a greater total amount of fatigue to be stimulated enough to grow and that type two fibers will be recruited more or at least earlier in a set with higher loads. And so higher load training will be more beneficial for growing type two fibers. Um, that's, that's the basic idea. Um, the evidence supporting the evidence supporting that claim is really flimsy. Um, and there are a couple reasons for that. One is just that a lot of, so there, there haven't been that many papers comparing different loading zones that also measured fiber specific hypertrophy. Uh, most, most papers that compare different loading zones and their effects on hypertrophy use some measure of whole muscle hypertrophy, either muscle thickness or cross-sectional area or something like that. To measure fiber type hypertrophy, you need to actually take a muscle biopsy, um, pre and post training. And so it's a lot more invasive. IRBs tend to not like it. 
Uh, depending where a university is located, for some of them, you have to have a doctor on staff to actually do the biopsies. Other places just let researchers do the biopsies, which honestly makes me a little bit nervous. Um, but yeah, so there, there are different regulations place to place. It's more invasive. So there, there aren't that many papers looking at fiber type specific hypertrophy with different loading zones in the first place. Uh, and then the bulk of the papers that have looked at it tend, have tended to kind of be like, like clinical ex phys studies. So um, older or untrained populations um, and kind of just like generally dumb training setups. Uh, and, and what you tend to see is that like the higher load groups in those studies are put on programs that are actually like kind of challenging and the lower load groups are put on programs that are like super easy. Um, so like at that point, are you really looking at the effects of loading zones on fiber type hypertrophy or, or are you more so looking at the effects of like training hard versus mm -hmm. not training <laughs> hard at all? Um, so there have only been... Oh, man. If I would have known you were asking about this, I would have brushed up on the individual papers. But I want to say that there have been five studies that actually had both the high load and low load groups training pretty hard that looked at fiber type hypertrophy. Um, the two best, in my opinion, were um, out of Stu Phillips' lab up at McMaster, uh, one by Mitchell et al. and one by Morton et al. Um, and both of them found pretty much no difference. Um, the Mitchell study compared training at 30% of one rep max to 80% of one rep max. And the, uh, the Morton study looked at, I want to say like 80, 85% of one rep max versus about 50% of one rep max. Um, the Mitchell paper used untrained subjects if memory serves and just used a unilateral knee extension design. Um, and kind of found what what looked like potential differences uh, in terms of more type one hypertrophy in the thirty percent one rep max group. Uh, it wasn't significant because the total subject number wasn't all that high, uh, but potentially potentially some slight evidence in favor of fiber type hypertrophy there. Um, the Morton paper was uh, larger; it had more subjects. And the subjects in that paper had uh, higher training status. I want to say they had at least one or two years of training experience prior to the study. Um, and it just found no differences whatsoever um, in terms of fiber type specific hypertrophy. So type 1 and type 2 growth in both the high load and low load groups with, with really no difference between them. Um, then of the other papers, let's see, two of them were by a Russian group, uh, Vino Grud Vino Gradova, I think, was the author of one of them, and Natriba was the author for the other one. Um, and if if I'm butchering any of this, like I'm just going off the top of my head, and I haven't looked at this stuff in like three months, uh, so I apologize. But this should be close enough. Uh, the the Vino Gradova paper was. Um, it was a lot to take in. So basically, it was like three experiments within a single paper. Um, it found, if memory serves, slight evidence of fiber type hypertrophy in terms, fiber type specific hypertrophy in terms of slightly more type two fiber growth in the higher load groups uh, in that paper, but none of the differences were particularly large. Um, the Natriba paper uh, was just kind of a garbage paper all around, if I'm being honest. Um, one of, so one of the reasons I don't trust that paper at all is they had, if memory serves, so they were doing knee extensions on a dynamometer and they were, <clears throat> um, the angular velocity for the knee extensions was like 180 degrees per second, um, which is really, really fast. That's uh, that's basically every rep taking about half a second or so if you're going from 90 degrees of flexion to full extension. Um, so fast knee extensions. And it said that they were using a load that was like 90% of peak torque, um, which is literally impossible. Uh, like if, if you've never messed around with a dynamometer, that's not going to jump off the page to you. Uh, but at 90% peak torque, like you're going to be able to move that at maybe 60 degrees per second at 100 at 180 degrees per second, um, 
like you you can literally only produce somewhere around 50% of max torque. Uh, so something in that paper doesn't add up. Either their methods are wrong or the whole thing is just completely uh, fabricated. Uh, so I, I just don't trust that paper at all. Um, and then the other paper uh, that, that kind of met the criteria of challenging training in both groups um, that found very strong evidence of fiber type specific hypertrophy, um, but also with some caveats was by Schwenke et al, 2012. Um, so a couple things about that paper. One, it was the only one that used female subjects. And interestingly, it is, as far as I'm aware, the only good high load versus low load paper that's used female subjects, period. Um, I'm pretty sure all of the rest that have actually had both high load and low load groups training hard have used exclusively male subjects. So it's, it's interesting in that regard. Um, and then it didn't so much find fiber type specific hypertrophy. It more so found that high load training made women jacked and low load training did nothing pretty much. Um, so it could just be that there's a sex difference there. Um, I don't necessarily know that it should be pooled with the other results since it was the only one that used women. And I wouldn't necessarily take it as evidence of fiber type specific hypertrophy. Um, if anything, I just take it as tentative evidence that uh, perhaps high load and low load training are similarly effective for hypertrophy for men, but that high load training may be more effective for women than low load training for hypertrophy generally. Um, so yeah, that was a lot of rambling, but that's kind of the state no, awesome. of that research as it is. Um, the two papers I put the most stock in are the the Morton and Mitchell papers. Um, labs, yeah. sl slight evidence in favor of type one specific hypertrophy with low low training in, in the Mitchell paper, but again, it wasn't significant uh, and really nothing in the Morton paper. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm skeptical that fiber type specific hypertrophy with different loading zones is a thing. And the reason I'm skeptical is that uh, I think kind of like reasoning from first principles, it doesn't really make all that much sense. So starting with the claim that low load training is going to be better for type one fiber growth. Um, so that's that's predicated on the idea that you need to induce more total fatigue in type one muscle fibers, or like you need to do more reps to induce enough fatigue uh, in type one muscle fibers for them to maximally hypertrophy. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I buy that for for a couple reasons. One is that uh, it seems that a lot of the signaling that's related to um, metabolic stress leading to muscle growth isn't just autocrine, so it's not just taking place within that in individual muscle fiber, but there are also paracrine factors as well. So basically fatigue from type two muscle fibers would also um, help influence the growth stimulus for type one muscle fibers. Uh, so you can't, you basically can't take a single fiber in isolation. You need to look at the entire like micro environment that it's in. Um, and the other thing as well is like, I just don't, like, we kind of have to reason by analogy here. Um, and so like an implication of, uh, an, an implication of the idea that more type one fiber fatigue is going to lead to more muscle growth would be that, um, say the best way to grow the type one fibers in your quads would maybe just be to do a whole bunch of like cycle sprints. Cause that's going to cause way more quad fatigue than like a set of 30 knee extensions or whatever. Um, and you just don't see that either in the research or in the real world. Um, and for, for type two fiber growth, I think it's even more straightforward. Um, so a lot of people assume, uh, just based on an inadequate understanding of how, uh, motor unit recruitment works that you don't recruit your high threshold motor units unless the weight is heavy enough. Uh, but that's not what happens at all. Um, you, so with a low load, you won't recruit high threshold motor units attached to type two fibers at the beginning of a set. Mm -hmm. But as you start to fatigue, um, the activation thresholds decrease and type one fibers start fatiguing. And so it's basically more motor units need to be tapped in. And so you do end up still recruiting 
either all or basically all of your motor units by the time you reach fatigue with a low load anyways. Um, Hedeman size principle the, for those guys who are... Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah ba- basic stuff. Um, so yeah, like I, I'm not... I'm not completely close to the idea that fiber type specific hypertrophy might be a thing. Um, I'm skeptical of it on both logical grounds and on the grounds that uh, the research is really, really hazy. And what what is, in my opinion, the best research on the subject tends to indicate it's not really a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm open to the idea, but I I just don't think that there's either logical rationale or research yet there to support it. Awesome, awesome. And something you started to touch on uh, was the sex differences in training. This is something that you love writing about. I think almost weekly or at least monthly now, you're putting out some content comparing. Well, men it's, and it's, women. it's 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 what I'm doing my thesis on. Yeah. Uh, so like, I have to read about it a lot anyway, so I may as well just double dip and write some stuff. Well, I figure considering I train literally seventy percent of females, it's it's very useful, and I think a lot of the listeners uh, will find. Many of those articles are extremely interesting and useful in a practical sense. And recently, uh, there was a paper that looked at gender differences uh, in the bench press, finding that females, uh, there was greater EMG uh, of the pec, uh, if, uh, if memory serves me correctly. Um, so what I wanted to, to talk about was this paper specifically uh, and you know, the practical uh, implications of these findings uh, you know, for designing programs uh, around the female bench press because we know how difficult it is to improve uh, or how much variation there is just in uh, you know strength for females on the bench press. It's always that one lift mm-hmm. that they seem to struggle a little more with um, and you know in program design, uh, you know selecting accessories, so on and so forth. Yeah, so I. I don't really know how much stock to put in that paper. Mm. Um, so the the paper you're referring to, they're they only t- it could have been such a cool paper, but it ended up not being a cool paper because they didn't report nearly as much data as they should have in the data they did report. They didn't report well. Um, so so the drawbacks to this paper is there were only uh, there were only five subjects in each group, um, and they only reported. Uh, peak EMG for the muscles they looked at, which were the uh, pec major, uh, the anterior deltoid, the lateral head of the triceps, and the long head of the triceps. Um, and so j- just reporting peak data, you, um, you you can only draw but so many inferences from that. Um, and so, and also just with, with five men and five women, they should have reported individual changes, but they mm. only reported means. And they didn't even report means and standard deviations or standard <laughs> error or anything like that. They just reported means, which is, eh, it's frustrating. Because um, like, so the thing is there, if you just look at the point differences between men and women, um, they looked at they looked at loads going up from, I want to say 55% of one rep max all the way up to one rep max. And they basically found that that there was a larger difference in pec activation for the women between 55% and one rep max loads. Uh, so women, their pec EMG increased more between those two points than men did. Um, and for men, it was actually pretty flat between 85% of one rep max and one rep max. Um, like their, their pec EMG increased up to about 85% and then didn't increase further with one rep max loads. Um, and on the flip side, the, um, long head of the triceps increased quite substantially between 55% loads and one rep max loads for men, uh, increased for women, but not nearly to the same degree. Um, as far as the male findings go, they're, um, they're very much in line with another paper that the same researchers published last year. And this is the reason the data reporting uh, frustrated me so much. Um, Last year, the same research group published a bench press EMG paper, which was just phenomenal. Um, Like they had more subjects, the data reporting was really good. Um, They showed basically like the average EMG trace throughout the entire rep. 
uh, with multiple different loads for all of the muscles they looked at. Um, so like you weren't just relying on peak values. You could see like how it changed throughout the rep and that being the case for every muscle they looked at. So it was a really, really cool paper. Um, like it, one of, one of probably the two best, uh, like biomechanics, neurophys bench press papers I've seen. Uh, and then they come out with this one this year, which is just terrible. Um, and so that, that's that's why it bugged me so much because I know this, this. You know they can do it. Do good work. Um, but yeah, so the 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 reason it frustrates me they didn't report individual data or at least standard deviations is like so with with only five subjects, if we saw like the five data points you know clustered together pretty well even though we wouldn't necessarily be able to draw sweeping conclusions from a small paper, uh, we could at least be a little bit more confident in the conclusion that like, hey, maybe women do progressively rely on their pecs more as weight goes up. Maybe men progressively rely on their triceps a little bit more as weight goes up uh, relative to each other. Um, so like if you're just seeing point differences, like just group means, if there's not a ton of variation around those means, you can still be reasonably confident in that conclusion, even with a small sample. If you're seeing a ton of dispersion around those means, so like, you know, maybe the women peck finding, like maybe four of the women very much looked like the male group. And then there was just like one woman whose peck EMG increased like 400% or some crazy shit like that. And that grabbed, that dragged the whole group mean up. Um, if they're not showing individual data or at least like, reporting confidence intervals or something, you can't really know for sure. Um, so yeah, like the the results of that paper and any takeaways need to be like super, super tentative. Um, but they, they kind of match what I've seen in the real world, um, which is that for, for male benchers, I think, I think a lot of, uh, like obviously the best way to get a bigger bench is just all of the muscles involved in the bench, get them all stronger and things are great. Um, but I, I have seen kind of a disproportionate amount of male benchers with like big pecs, but also just stupid big triceps. Um, one of the first meets I ever went to, uh, it was 100% raw nationals uh, somewhere in Virginia, um, like way back in the day, like 2000, eight, 2009, maybe. Um, and so like, you know, I'm, I'm this fresh faced kid. I think I'm like 15 at the time. Um, and there was this guy at that meet, his name was rock Lewis, not a nickname, actual name. Um, That's brilliant. and he benched, uh, 600 at 242, which may still be the world record. Um, but it at least was at the time. And it was the crazier thing about it is like, he self unracked and he opened 560. And so, um, 560, like he just unracks straight down speed rep, like ridiculous. Goes 580 on his second, looks exactly the same. Goes 600 on his third, like slight slowdown on the way up, but also like pretty smooth. And I'm like sitting in the front row just bugging out because, like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a kid. I've never seen this shit before. Um, but anyway, like just, his his triceps just hung off of his arm like a like a sirloin steak like they were enormous. Um, other crazy male benchers like Jeremy Hoonstra, for example, also has absurdly big triceps. Um, also takes like a reasonably narrow grip on the bench. I think that's due to past pec issues. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like obviously. There, there are pec and tricep dominant, both male and female benchers who are very successful. Um, I just, just based on my observations, like looking at really, really good male benchers and really, really good female benchers, uh, the really good female benchers do seem to kind of be disproportionately pec dominant benchers. Uh, whereas for the men, you kind of see a mixture of the two. Um, so it, even though this this was a pretty weak study, it kind of does comport pretty well with what I've seen in the real world. In terms of what you would do about it, uh, again, this is based based more on just like personal observations than anything else. 
Um, I have noticed that if you give uh, men and women similar like arm accessories, um, the men tend to respond a lot better, both in like a relative and absolute sense, absolute sense, obviously, but also a better, like they tend to respond better relatively. Um, whereas women tend to respond in a relatively similar way to like uh, pec accessory exercises. Um, like if, and again, this is just like one data point, but like if, if me and my wife went out to our garage to lift some weights and we were doing like just a straight bodybuilder, like pec and arms workout, um, like I'm going to use like three times as much weight as her for tricep exercises uh, and like not even twice as much weight for pec exercises. Um, even though like I outbench her way more than twofold. Um, so yeah, like, and I'm not saying that that like generalizes to all people, but also just with male and female clients that I've trained over the years, um, I have noticed that, that women tend to respond better to, uh, pec accessory work than tricep accessory work. So maybe there's something there, maybe that could guide your programming or, Maybe it's just a small bias sample and you should completely ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic, fantastic. I hope your uh, your wife listens to this and uh, hears... She won't. <laughs> no. No, but uh, I think that's really she, useful. She, she hears me ramble about lifting enough as is. No, I think it's really useful. Uh, you know, observation is is important, uh, you know, just as much as the research. Uh, and the final thing I wanted to, to talk about, Greg, was the appeal of science. And you posted recently on Facebook uh, just a rundown of some of the data from your website, which was quite phenomenal. Very impressive. So well done. Um, Thanks, dude. But it, but it just shows that pe people are interested in science. And, you know, we've seen such a big movement over the past, you know, five, five years or so in the evidence-based community. People, you know, hashtag science now uh, to means of marketing for coaches um, and it's also, you know, a selling point. Um, but there's obviously a number of obstacles with people getting access to primary research. Um, mm -hmm. As you've outlined and demonstrated today, there's so much more to it than what uh, people who are not privy to uh, research on a regular basis or don't have the education, uh, you know, to read and interpret research. Uh, so there's that issue, uh, and, but you also mentioned there's accessibility and then the communication of that. So I guess I just want to ask you, you know, moving forward, you've started Mass, you've got your website, what do you see to be the next steps uh, in, you know, the dissemination of research and what are you, you know, trying to do to improve, you know, the, the outreach and the overall, uh, you know, distribution of, you know, what's happening in the literature? Um... So, uh, like ultimately I think it just, I think it all comes back to good communication. Um, it, for the listeners, if you've gotten this far in the podcast, uh, you'll probably notice that there is a reason why I primarily write instead of podcast or make videos. Uh, I, I think I'm quite a good communicator, uh, in words on a page, but I'm not nearly as good of a speaker. Like I, I recognize that about myself. I thought you did pretty um, well, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I think ultimately, I think ultimately to get any message out there, it, it comes down to a few things. Um, but I think a couple of the biggest are communication skills and, um, communication skills and, and rhetoric kind of broadly or more generally, like how well you can connect with an audience. Um, and I think a lot of people who try to communicate science to the masses, I, I think there are, I think they make a couple mistakes. Um, one, I think a lot of times they don't, they don't make a convincing case for why people should care about science before they attempt to tell people about science. Um, because like, I, I think we all see the world kind of through our own lens. And if you're someone who's all about science, it it's obvious to you that like, if someone is promoting something that is based on science, we'd be like, oh, cool, maybe I should check that out. And if someone's promoting something that's not based on science at all, they show like a 
mockery of the scientific method, then you'll be like, ah, that person's a charlatan. Fuck them. <laughs> um, and so, like, we in our in this like little evidence-based sphere, that's kind of just how we're wired. Um, and and people tend to kind of make the assumption that other people are wired the same way they are. And so, if you don't, if you're not uh, good at communicating like why the scientific way of work looking at the world is valuable and important in the first place, then that's just not going to, like you'll never even have a chance for your message to resonate with people. It's like one, I think you need to be good at pitching the value of science in the first place. Um, and then two, once you have people who are interested in science in the first place, which I think there are a lot of those people, um, like if you look at the most successful charlatans, they are good communicators who give the veneer of caring about science. Um, so like, you know, Food Babe or like Deepak Chopra or like whatever. Like they they act like they care about science. They clearly don't. They're fucking charlatans. But they're also really, really good communicators. Um, and like the people who are interested in what they have to say are likely people who at least like care about science on some level. They just aren't good at discerning who's accurately representing it or not. So like, I think that there's a big audience of people who, who do care about science on some level. Um, and ultimately then it's just a matter of like, how well can you communicate it? Um, and I think that communicating science correctly, uh, is always harder than communicating it poorly. Um, like the way that a Deepak Chopra or a food babe would, um, because, you know, Science relies on detail and nuance, which can make it hard to to weave a compelling story and a good narrative. Um, so I, th I think that puts kind of like, quote unquote, true evidence based people at a bit of a disadvantage to start with. Uh, but kind of within within the ethical confines of representing evidence well, um, there's still plenty of room to either communicate that evidence well or poorly. Um, and I think that a lot of people are focused, focus a lot on the science and not at all on the communication. And they just assume that if what they're saying is true, it should resonate with people, but it has to be both true and communicated well and effectively. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons my website has done well. Um, like I, like you can go back to the very back of my archives and read some of the stuff that I was writing in like 2012, 2013, it was fucking terrible. Like it was just God awful. Um, but my wife is, uh, well, she does a bunch of stuff now, but her training is in copy editing. Um, like, you know, which is partially just grammar, punctuation, proper mechanics of the English language, but it's also just like, uh, editing writing for good style. Um, and so, <laughs> Uh, I was like, hey, Lindsay, I'm not a great writer. Can you make me not suck? Uh, and so through, you know, lots of practice and years of hard work, like, I don't think I'm Mark Twain or anything like that. But like, I think that I've, I've through like hard work and effort and a lot of very patient feedback uh, from my wife, I think I've gotten to be a fairly effective writer. Um, and so like, I... I think that the success of my website is based on a few things. Like, I, I think part of it is just that, like, I don't write because I feel like I have to. Um, I think a lot of people who kind of try to start on the content side of things are like, okay, need to put out five videos a week, or like, I need to write a new article every week. And there's, there's ultimately just not that much to say. And so you end up either putting out kind of low quality content or just kind of saying the same thing everyone else is, which isn't necessarily bad, but in terms of growing an audience, if you're saying the same thing everyone else is, when someone lands on your site and they're reading the same thing from you that they've read from five of their sources previously, that doesn't really give them much of a reason to come back and read more of your stuff. Um, so I, I try to I try to only write when I have something to say and at least make it somewhat interesting. Uh, and I think just, I've worked on my writing skills. I've worked on my communication skills. And I think that's been really important. Um, and I find that, like, I found for myself, like, when I focus on only writing when I have something to say, 
and doing everything possible to say it well and communicate it clearly, um, there are people who are into it. So I think that uh, I think that a lot of people who kind of try to get into the content side of things, they're into science. They see that like, oh, like no one's reading my site, no one's watching my YouTube channel, but like all of these like BS artists are getting millions of reads, millions of views. Like one, they've just been doing it longer than you have. And two, they're probably a better communicator than you are. Um, you won't necessarily be able to take advantage of their ability to have a loose relationship with the facts and weave compelling but BS narratives that may connect more strongly with people. But you, you can take advantage of learning good communication skills in kind of whatever platform you choose to communicate on. Um, so anyway, where, where I see all of this going in the future. Sorry, sorry for that huge aside. Like no, I said, no, that was brilliant. I think I'm, that's I'm, really I'm, useful for, for coaches out there who are, you know, into evidence-based practice, want to, you know, put out good quality information that gets heard and, you know, build an audience. I think that was, that was perfect, man. So no need to apologize. Okay. Um, <laughs> so in terms of where I want to go in the future, um, one thing that I recognize is that there is probably a total larger audience for, for visual media than there is for written media, um, which bums me out. Like, I, I don't watch videos of anything. Um, I prefer to read. Uh, but, like, I mean, you can get a decent idea of site traffic for, like, big evidence-based fitness websites, uh, like using Alexa scores or whatever. And then you can compare that to what people are getting on Instagram or YouTube. Um, and so I think that I think that to get uh, a good message to more people, I will need to learn how to use visual media a little bit better. Um, which, like, uh, I, I and so here's here's something I think that's a difference between me and other people. Um, I don't plan to just like. I already have a YouTube channel. I don't do much on it. Uh, but when I take it seriously, that's going to be like an undertaking that's going to involve like actually practicing, improving my speaking skills, um, either finding a good video editor or learning good video editing skills. Like it, it's not going to be a slap together thing. Um, because like if I'm using that platform to communicate, like I, I, I occasionally do just like Q and a videos and those are still going to be like super low key. But in terms of like, actually putting time and effort into it, I'm going to care about like, what is the quality of the presentation? Am I communicating well? Is, am I doing everything possible to make sure that this res that this message has the greatest chance possible to actually connect and resonate with people? Um, and I think that a lot of people just don't, don't use that line of reasoning. They're just like, well, it's kind of the field of dreams thing. Like if you build it, they will come. Like if I have this Instagram account or I have this YouTube channel and I'm saying accurate things, hopefully just through the magic of the universe, people will find it and keep watching me or like keep or like, uh, what do you, what's it called on Instagram or follow me on Instagram. Um, I, so, okay, bro. Like here's like, I'm 26, but I think technologically I'm like 65 years old. Uh, I didn't find out that. I didn't find out you could send messages on Instagram until like nine months ago. Uh, and I'd had an Instagram for like three years and I went on there and I'm like, Oh shit, I have like 200 messages. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, so yeah, like I'm actually going to learn the platforms and try to work on my communication skills on those platforms before like really making a big push. Um, and I, I think that's because like, I value good communication. And I think that, uh, I think that that's something that a lot of people lack in general, but also kind of our evidence-based group of people tend to neglect more than average. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think, I think, al cool. I think ultimately that's what holds, holds, uh, the evidence-based side of the industry back more than anything else. Like I think that it's just information on the whole, based. Yeah, I, I think yeah. we're I think we're a group of people that think that that information is the only thing that matters or that, 
you know, it, it's 90% of the value that you can provide, but like being able to like having good presentation quality, good communication, like that's, that's so, so important. Um, and I think that our group of people just kind of neglect that. Awesome, man. No, I, uh, appreciate that. And, you know, me personally, uh, that has a lot of merit to it and I've taken a hell of a lot away from uh, that specific uh, topic of discussion in this entire podcast. So guys, I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode with Greg. Uh, make sure you check out all of uh, his work. He puts out phenomenal content and as I'm sure uh, you now know, if you've made it this far in the podcast, he uh, puts in a lot of effort into the way that he presents and communicates uh, his message and obviously other science. So thank you, Greg. Thank you. It's been a blast.